Hello, and welcome to the rapid unscheduled disassembly episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of what has been a week of many blow-ups. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and other places. Hello. Fox News exploded and wound up having to bleed $787.5 million all over Dominion voting systems. We're going to talk about that. SpaceX had a Starship which exploded, which is either bad or good, depending on how you look at it. We're going to talk about that and basically the bigger picture of is there a big public utility to having private companies that can take risks? We are going to talk about the Apple savings account and also just bank accounts more generally and why they are why they are. We have a Slate Plus segment where Emily will explain why it's so important to have data about the care economy, much of which we just don't have right now. It's all coming up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So, shall we start with Fox Dominion? Because that's the big news of the week. Um, we should start with Fox Dominion because we have a special guest, Peter Kafka, who writes about Fox Dominion and all things um, media-related for Vox.com and has a whole podcast devoted to such things. It's called Recode Media. It's the last little atavistic remnant of the Recode brand. And... Peter recorded the Slate Money Succession show with us, which is coming out on Monday. But since we had him on, of course, we asked him to stay on and talk about Fox Dominion. So that's what we did. So Peter is with us just for one segment, and we can talk about that. We have to ask you about Fox settling with Dominion for $787 million, which is some vast multiple of Dominion's revenues. And my first question for you is, how do you get to such a big number, given that Dominion can't possibly have suffered that much in damages? Um, that's Fox's argument, right? And that's Fox's argument for their next one. Smart with, I always can, yeah. keep calling it smart Semantic smart, smart, or something? Smartmatic, yeah. right? Because they're asking for even more. Um, the way you get to it is you have an ex really extensive paper trail generated by Fox employees saying, let's do crime. This is why we're doing crime. Let's do more crime. Hey, this crime that we're doing, we should continue to do it. Does anyone have any reservations about this crime? You just, it's, it's that bad of a case for Fox is, is how you get to 
basically half of the of the initial Dominion ask. So let me just push you on that because I don't entirely understand this. Like I can understand that if Fox is doing a lot of crime and there's a paper trail showing that it's doing a lot of crime, then if you if there was like a criminal case about against Fox, then that would be bad for Fox. But this isn't a criminal case against Fox. This is a civil case against Fox claiming damages that Fox caused, right? So why does a crime paper trail mean that the damages were higher? Um, I My assumption was that, that, that Fox is worried about a punitive uh, add-on, but I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. Um, but clearly Fox wanted to settle for a long time. Um, and clearly Dominion said, we're going to wait until we have maximum leverage, which is the beginning of the trial. Um, and that's what we're going ex- to extract. I do think the 700, it's not 787, it's 787.5 million has to have some very <laughs> specific meaning to someone on that deal team. I cannot imagine what it is. Uh, but I, I, do not ha- I don't have an answer. I mean, clearly, if, if Fox thought it had a better position, they would keep going. Um, so I just, it's, it's that much crime. And just to catch people up, we're talking about (laughs) the lawsuit between Fox and Dominion, which makes voting machines and sued Fox. I think it's been at least two years, Mm -hmm. two years ago for um, repeatedly spreading the falsehood that their machines were hacked and votes were changed and blah, 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 Venezuela, like just crazy lies. And then um, everyone expected to go to trial, but it didn't. And Dominion leaked a lot of, or leaked or shared a lot of um, text messages between Fox news hosts that were really embarrassing to Fox, where the hosts like Tucker Carlson and who else basically admitted that they knew these were lies, um, which is like the key thing you have to you have to yeah you have to prove in a defamation case is the is the yeah line just so people know what we're talking reach. about and yeah and then it settled at the last minute right when they were and, actually in court about to go to yeah. trial and, Very and the. The thesis is, um, is it plausible that the actual damages that Fox would be would have been awarded in trial would have been related to Dominion's revenues and therefore much smaller, but that Rupert Murdoch in particular was willing to pay an extraordinarily large amount of money to make this case go away just because he didn't want to go on into the witness booth stand thing. Well, that was the question I had. I interviewed David Fulkenflick uh, from NPR, who's professional Murdoch and, and News Corp, or a 21st Century Fox watcher. And my question to him is, what? Why would why would news? Why would Murdoch and Murdoch Land? care about being embarrassed. They run Fox News. The whole premise of Fox <laughs> News is we make our own reality. Um, only what we say happens here. Uh, everything that doesn't happen on Fox News doesn't exist or is a lie. Um, all those embarrassing headlines that came out, which everyone was you know, shocked again to discover that, that things were not above board at Fox News, um, <laughs> that's already out there. What could possibly be what could possibly be yet to be exposed? And Fulk and Flick pointed out that one, you know, it's one thing to have Rupert Murdoch in a deposition in a fairly controlled environment. It's different to put him in a courtroom um, where he might go full Jack Nicholson. Uh, and two, that there are a ton of redactions um, in in the stuff that was floated out by Dominion earlier this year. And so there might be even more embarrassing stuff. I still I still have so bought into the Fox News we and slash Republican we 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 
we create our own reality argument that I'm still not convinced that they didn't want to just brazen it out. But obviously they didn't because they paid, a, they paid so much money to make it stop. And have said, and they're also signaling, we will do this for the other, you know, we're going to do this for Symantec too, or Smartmatic. I keep confused. It's such a good point because it's not even clear, like the Fox News audience even really was aware of the suit at all. How, how would like, they know about it? Yeah. How would they know? It was covered for like, what, six seconds on Fox or something after it settled? Um, or not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, so the, when, the only way they'd know is because they realized that Lou Dobbs got fired. It does seem like almost all the a lot of the coverage is sort of like wish fulfillment almost from the, the media, the non-Fox media, you know, just sort of gleefully running with the text messages, gleefully running with the stories, trying to frame this as a win for Dominion when it's really just like a win for the private equity company that owns Dominion and a loss because we don't get to find out the stuff that David Fulkenflick is talking about, right? But it's also weirdly a win for press freedom, right? Like we, we don't want journalism companies losing defamation cases in general or defamation cases being easy to win. I don't know, like the size of the settlement makes it less of a win for press freedom, but at least there's no judgment and guilty verdict. But you can slice it either way, right? If you're going to have libel and defamation law, and then you have, this is the, this is the version that you should, this is the wrong, don't do this version. Don't you think? Um, Yes, it's a slam dunk defamation case. And if you can't lose a defamation case like this, then you can't ever lose a defamation case. I mean, it's the, the, the chips are, I think, appropriately stacked on behalf of media companies in the U.S. Um, but there do, have to be, there do have to be violations. Otherwise, there is no law. Right. Right. Now, that makes sense. Wait, press freedom. I, I don't think the press should have the freedom to just make shit up. Well, it did historically, right? Back in like the 19th century, it absolutely did. And the yellow press and all of that kind of stuff, it, people just made, made shit up all the time. And then eventually, yeah, these torts were created. But, it, you know, as, as the standard is come, you're allowed to make mistakes. Yeah, right? of course. What you can't do is, is, is publish stuff you know is wrong or publish stuff where you don't know if it's right, but you don't try to that's the reckless part right where you don't try to find out if you're right and traditionally you know a, a media company would say well we did our best to find out we made a mistake um and again this is why this is a slam dunk case because you have everyone on fox saying we know what we're doing is wrong <laughs> over and over yeah and this is also why you know when when like sarah palin brought a defamation suit against the new york times the new york times won that handily because they it was nowhere near a slam dunk case. Yeah, I mean the the press freedom worry is when and if one of these cases gets to the Supreme Court where you now absolutely have Justice Thomas as well as other uh, of the justices saying I think it is good for us to revisit the existing libel laws. I'm I'm eager to do that. That's that's a real problem. So we when when and if one of those cases gets there, that is that is the thing to worry about. It's interesting on um I listened to the Daily episode on this case, and the reporter was saying Fox was at some point optimistic about the prospect of going to the Supreme Court because they felt like a conservative court would back them on a First Amendment argument. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it's like they're against the press, yes, but they're really conservative, so that would make them lean towards Fox. It gets very confusing. Yes, it's possible that some <laughs> people on, on the Supreme Court are not ideologically consistent. It's possible. <laughs> we don't know. This is a business podcast, so how could we know? 
But the one thing that seems pretty clear is that it didn't have any real business effect, at least judging by the stock price on Fox. Like, as, as a corporate story, it's like, eh. It's weird how, how Fox as a company with a valuation, even, even with what is presumably an even bigger settlement with Smartmatic priced in, doesn't seem to have suffered any like financial damage from this. I mean, it's the classic sell the news, right? Or is it buy the news, sell the whatever, whatever the <laughs> buy the rumor, sell the fact, whatever the the aphorism is that I can no longer remember, right? So like Wall Street would have already priced in whatever the damage was, right? So um, this is, so what, that's what I'm saying, right? The the, the seven hundred and ninety million plus whatever the smartmatic is on top is was already priced into the Fox share price. I don't think people would have said that pre-trial, but maybe it was. No, I mean it had to be right. It absolutely had to be. I mean, or maybe, well, maybe just there's the the value of the franchise is largely unaffected, and it's not a very big deal. And the amounts of money, while big on in terms of like annual profits, not big in terms of annual revenues or long term. Right. They they can afford they can afford to pay it. Anything that that anything short of something that cripples them operationally, and this won't, um, doesn't affect the value of the asset. Um, it seems to be what Wall Street is saying. Now, again, they could say something different in six months because sometimes they're not consistent either. Um, but it was, it was, it's, it is, it's still just as a regular person, as a regular human, just to see Wall Street shrug, to literally go, nope, there is no change in the value of Fox now that you're a billion dollars, uh, billion dollars in the hole. But, you know, we saw in different scale, but Facebook had a $5 billion FTC settlement. Wall Street was happy at the time. That they were able to do that, so that's 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 cheap to get off. Now you can keep going. Um, so yeah, and I think they this. have insurance. They have insurance, and I saw reporting um, earlier this week that they get tax write off for paying this money. Also, like it's fine. Is this a legitimate business expense that you can deduct against your taxes? Cost of business, Cost doing of business def- defamation, having to pay a little money. Eh. We got good ratings. Yeah, presumably the insurance premiums will go up. Um, once you call in the $800 billion payment. Peter Kafka, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, with Peter out of the way, we can have an ad break, and we're going to come back and talk about Elon Musk and private companies. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this was a big week in Elon Musk. Most weeks are a big week in Elon Musk. And we don't 
talk about Elon Musk every time there's a big week in Elon Musk, because then this would be slate money Elon, and no one wants to listen to slate money Elon. So let's just use Elon as a news hook here, um, which is that he did a couple of things this week which were kind of interesting. One thing he did was play around with the verification check marks on Twitter and annoy a lot of people by taking them away from people like me. Um, and the, another thing he did was launch a spaceship into the stratosphere. And then after a while, it blew up. And both of these things, it strikes me, are the kind of reckless, high risk, I own the company and I can do what I like kind of things that you often find with a certain type of entrepreneur who like owns, you know, found founder owner. And famously, Elon Musk once tweeted that he was going to take Tesla private because he hated Tesla being a public company. Um, he failed in doing so. And now there are a bunch of shareholder suits basically saying, you know, please, board, can you rein in Elon Musk? He is a public company CEO and he needs to behave himself. And so what I wanted to ask you guys was basically, is this an interesting decision? Is there a sense in which the craziest, high-riskiest kind of stuff can and should happen in the private markets and especially in in companies that are owned by their founders and that they can basically do what they want and that going public creates a bunch of like fiduciary responsibilities to public shareholders and stuff that necessarily constrains you and sometimes forces you to do things like lay off an entire newsroom like BuzzFeed just did it shut down BuzzFeed News not long after it went public and became a public company and it started having those re responsibilities. I think it's an interesting question and I feel like it's a a blurry thing. One thing that was interesting was to read the comments from NASA about um the SpaceX rocket blowing up. It's un rapid unscheduled disassembly <laughs> as the company called it. Um, so, uh, wait, wait, can we just, like, very briefly, because that's such a glorious phase, was that SpaceX being ironic, or were they just doing that kind of euphemism thing that you often find in the space industry? I Elon's believe it was used the that euphemism for, yeah. thing. He's used that phrase before as a joke, and then I think he just recycled it under the circumstances. Okay, so that was, so that was a, it was a joke. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the NASA administrator, you know, then like took to Twitter, as they say, and he said, like, every great achievement throughout history has demanded some level of calculated risk, because with great risk comes great re reward. Um, but the, the fact is, NASA couldn't have taken a risk like this. They couldn't have had this public exposure where everyone's watching their rocket launch, and then it blows up. Like, they don't want this. They can't do this. So... I think it well, is if important. If they do do it, then they need to they need to do a much better job of expectations management. Mm -hmm. Like w SpaceX did kind of communicate to the space nerds that they expected the rocket to to blow up at some point and they were just hoping that it would blow up later rather than sooner. But that um communication 
didn't really make it out into the broad public. And then the first the broad public knew about it was rocket explodes. <laughs> and that sounds like a bad thing. Right. I think it, I think Felix, it is, it is good to have private companies that can take more risks. That's risky though. So there's always going to be situations where they take risks that we don't like and go terribly wrong. And we wind up bringing our hands about it and talking about it on Slate Money and saying, how could they make this decision? What a mistake, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, on balance, probably a good thing to have private market yeah, well, companies being able to do more. Also, you know, SpaceX is almost a public-private partnership in a way because they are still heavily funded by the government. They work in concert with NASA. Um, but I remember maybe a decade ago, I was at a foreign policy thing with a bunch of astronauts. And because I'm 10 years old in my brain, I asked them all the you know questions that I have about space and at some point, SpaceX had just done a cargo ship launch. And there were two astronauts who told me that they would never set foot on a SpaceX vehicle because they just didn't believe that Musk had the same safety standards as NASA. And that may not be true anymore, but, you know, I, I think the people will tolerate the rocket exploding as long as it's unmanned. Mm. You know, it's a very different scenario when people are actually, you know, getting on the rockets. So. Sure. But I mean, like, yeah, I'll believe people getting on space, you know, starship rockets, like, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I think that's a that's a very um, distant uh, possibility. I know that Elon Musk is very into it, as is, in, as is Jeff Bezos, but friend of the pod, Manu Sardia, will come on anytime we want to explain in great detail why it makes absolutely no sense. And it's completely insane. Um, I mean, generally, you the, want, yeah. you want... I, I know I just made the case for private companies need to take risks, but most of the time you do want either you want more caution, you want a regulator to step in, like it. You don't want like some private hedge fund or something, um, private equity firm to like blow up the markets and take the the economy down. You need some kind of right. accountability. So, so you need you need regulators where there's like broad systemic risk mm -hmm. to you know the economy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like banks blow up, that's bad. Mm -hmm. That's why we have bank regulators. Mm -hmm. Utilities blow up, that's bad. That's why we have utilities regulators. Um, rocket blows up, rocket blows up. Like it doesn't wow. actually have <laughs> any any like major repercussions on the rest of the economy. We can, you know, so long as the so long as SpaceX can cope with it, the rest of us can cope with it just fine. And it as, doesn't yeah, really affect it. As Elizabeth said, as long as there's no people on the rocket, that's very important. <laughs> right. Yeah, I also think, you know, Twitter is is kind of a, a more indicative of the sort of governance problems that you run into when you have, you know, a single owner who can do whatever he wants. And I think, um, you know, in, in situations like that, there's very little to stop Elon Musk or a similar owner from turning the entire company into a vanity project, which is what it feels like he's doing a little bit with. Well, it's interesting, right? So definitely there are um, public interest ramifications to what Elon does with Twitter. But there are actually regulators there. Twitter is operating under an FTC consent decree. It is operating under various similar regulatory oversight um, regimes in Europe. And everyone is expecting that sh th those shoes to drop you know, at some point, we don't know exactly when, but a whole bunch of governments, both in Europe and in the US and quite possibly elsewhere, 
are going to come down on Twitter and basically say, you know, you are breaking the law in all manner of different ways. And and we don't know when that's going to happen, but it's one of those things that is going to happen a bit like at some point, the SEC will come down on Coinbase and say, you are running an unregulated securities exchange. But like we, we it will happen. We just don't know when. Yeah. And the thing with that is that it those things happen after the fact. So like the thing blows up and then the regulators step in and they're like, no, 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 you did wrong. And then the penalties come, but the the damage has already been done. Right. I mean, the, 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 the FTC consent decree is in place already, right? There are a whole bunch of guidelines that Twitter does by law have to be operating within that it does very much seem to be violating. So it like they can, you know, they've put those guidelines in place for a reason. Twitter is has has crossed those lines and now at some point, you know, the remedy has to happen. It needs to be enforced. Yeah, but I, I do agree that like on some level, you need regulators to be able to keep companies within the lines. But on another level, you don't want to just have them in charge. You can't just sort of, they can't just like waltz into the CEO suite and fire the CEO and take over sure. and unilaterally declare that the lines have been crossed without going to court. You know, we, we have, you know, processes. I guess I was thinking more about this more recent change with the check marks, which at first just seems like oh, okay, Emily, Elizabeth, and Felix are going to whine because their check marks were taken away or something. But there's bigger ramifications, like check marks were a way of knowing who is a real person and who is an authoritative voice on that platform, which, yes, it's private, but it has public utility and it's like a public square. So now you you can't really know who anyone is anymore. And at some point, something is going to go wrong. Someone is oh, going to be pretending. Many things have gone wrong already. And But the thing is that the check marks were introduced by a private company, mm -hmm. Twitter, sure. you know, to solve a real impersonation problem. Um, they were then taken away by the same private company, clearly in the belief that the impersonation problem is something that Elon doesn't really care about. Um, and yeah, like I do think there is a public interest in solving the impersonation problem. Um, but yeah, you're right that it's hard, it's hard to sort of spin up a regulatory regime on the fly that can move at the speed of social media and that can, you know, just kind of like determine that the Twitter impersonation problem is a, is a public interest thing and that you can get some kind of consent decree saying don't take away people's check marks. <laughs> yeah, it's also such a weird situation because Elon keeps making these decisions that I think, you know, if you've been on Twitter for a long time, you understand why these things exist. And surely as people internally who are explaining to him that, you know, the checkmark regime was really about, uh, you know, platform integrity and stopping the impersonation problem. But he seems determined to learn all of this stuff the hard way. And it's it's sort of, you know, when you see the, the Tesla shareholders coming after him because they say, you know, you're running three different companies and you're not focusing on anything. You know, it's, it's some of it might just be endemic to his personality where he can't, you know, he doesn't listen to advisors, not really listening to his shareholders. But, you know, they have a point. So how many other CEOs can we think of that are running multiple companies at once with, you know, high stakes around them? The last Twitter CEO. Yeah, no, Jack Dorsey's <laughs> back down to one now. But, um, but yeah, I think, like, but this, is, this has always been shareholders going into 
Tesla, which is the only public company he runs, um, with their eyes open, right? Like they know that they're taking a bunch of Elon risk. And to a large degree, on some level, they should probably be happy that he's distracted by Twitter because like, you know, by all accounts, he doesn't really get involved very much in SpaceX. And that's one of the reasons why it's doing so well, you know? Um, You know, and like there is this kind of idea that a CEO acts more like a chairman and sets a bit of strategic direction and delegates effectively and, you know, worries about going surfing or something. Like, you can run a company that way. Um, It does tend to happen more in private companies precisely because, you know, public companies, you know, the CEO is appointed by the board, is answerable to shareholders and gets paid a lot of money. Um, and and the shareholders like want want to feel like that person is working hard for the money. In private companies, it doesn't really work that way. You know, you own the company anyway. So, uh, to to Emily's point, like there are more risks involved in private companies, and risk exists to the downside and the upside. And I have a whole chapter in my book about how like the what we saw during the pandemic was like the amount of risk in both directions. Um, going up significantly and i think that's what we're seeing here as well and i definitely take emily's point that when it comes to big companies you kind of want them to be less risky um one of the very strong findings in the literature for instance is that public companies are much better when it comes to dei issues things like um board level diversity and senior executive diversity than private companies are um so you know and that's partly because like once you become a public company you become answerable to a much broader group of stakeholders than back when you it was your own sort of private fief you're just more in the sunshine you have to report more information to the public um yeah you're accountable to shareholders now it's a different ball game but i'm wondering we're using elon musk as sort of the example of private market companies and like is that really fair (laughs) um yeah is he a real extreme a real outlier are there private market companies a little more chill then all i could think of as another example was like mark zuckerberg saying when facebook was private move fast and break things which is like exactly the same problem but of course not every private company is a tech company right so the big private companies will be you know, like Coke Industries mm-hmm. or Stripe, Cargill, uh-huh. or, you know, Cargill. like there are lots of, you know, just big industrial companies. And then people worry about like, what do the owners do with their money because they're very profitable? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or Bloomberg is a really good example of like a big private company. And no one really worries about, I mean, it's actually interesting. Robin Wigglesworth had a big piece on Bloomberg and the FT this week. Um, and he's like, Bloomberg is one of those big private companies that actually is incredibly systemically important. If there was a big Bloomberg outage, like the entire international financial system would like collapse, basically, that we have already seen in the past. There were like mini Bloomberg outages, which caused entire bond issues to get pulled. They were like, oh, we can't do this bond issue because Bloomberg is down. Wait, why? I'd explain more. Because it's how it's how everyone in the financial world 
deals and communicates. It's like it's the it's the um, it's the messaging platform. It's the information platform. It's how everyone knows how much you know bonds are priced at, how they communicate with each mm -hmm. other. If you don't have a Bloomberg, like basically the entire flow of money around the world just screeches to a halt. It's kind of crazy. Um, but it is this is this systemically important institution, which is basically unregulated. And the people at Bloomberg take that responsibility very seriously, and they are pretty good at keeping it up. But, you know, should on should there be some kind of regulator somewhere that is trying to ensure that? Yeah, probably. probably. There probably should be. And, and a lot of these companies should have to report information to the public, just like public companies do. Probably. But I don't know how you make those distinctions. Like, is it when your company reaches a certain level of revenue or something that you have new rules should be applied to you, no matter if you're public or private? Most private companies have bond issues. And the minute that you have bond issues, then you have a relatively detailed degree of reporting requirements. You still come out with those 10 Qs and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but yeah, if you're Bloomberg and you're just, throwing off billions of dollars of cash every year and you have no need to borrow money, then you don't even have that. Interesting. And then someone writes an article about you that you're a dark something, a dark bank, <laughs> a dark this, a dark fund. <laughs> and then everyone pays attention for at least a minute. Um, but am I saying that I don't want any private companies? No, I'm not saying that. They're good. They're the engine of our economy. We need them. <laughs> they are, and they're, they're definitely the, the, the engine of growth. And most companies are private companies. Right. Right? This is the thing we have to remember. The vast majority of companies in the United States now and for all of history have been private. Right, right. And we want that because the public companies don't take risks and they don't innovate. You guys used to talk about that more in the earlier regimes of slate money, is my recollection, right? Um, um, it's we it's it's not even that like there's a we we want it because public companies don't take risks. It's more that just like that's how companies are formed, especially over the past twenty years or so. Um, it's become pretty expensive to go public. It's been it's become pretty expensive to do all of the reporting that is required of public companies. Oh, you're talking and about and most companies just most companies just aren't big enough to be able to afford those expenses. Sarbanes-Oxley, I think you're talking about. Sarbox. There you go. <laughs> anyway, we, we should probably have an ad break and come back and talk about savings accounts because there's a new one from a fruit company in Cupertino. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
Um, okay, so Apple is getting into banking. Emily, you were kind of shocked by the amount of press surrounding the Apple savings account. I, Tell me what you saw. I saw a lot of stories in the business press, at least, about Apple's new high-yield savings account. It's a 4.15 annual percentage yield account, and there was just a lot of excitement and hype about it. And I, I was a little, yeah, I was taken aback by the excitement and hype. There, You can get 4.25, 4.15 from other places online. I mean, they're not name brand. They're not Apple. Uh, so I didn't really understand why everyone was so excited. And Felix was just kind of like, it's Apple, that's why. I think that's kind of what you said. No one else was as surprised as I was <laughs> by the hype over the Apple <laughs> well, savings Apple account. Apple is a cool brand. Like, there, there's no bank or equivalent that I think has the same level of status or, you know, mm -hmm. cult following. Right. So it's like people who normally don't care about any of this are like, ooh, Apple's doing 4.15. That seems really great. Oh my gosh. Wow. We can have Pretty this much. amazing thing. <laughs> then I went into this like spiral where I started realizing that I really like Apple Pay. And then I felt like an Apple booster. And then I said, someone needs to write about this. Probably not me. <laughs> and then I wrote about it. Yes. Um, check out Axios Markets this morning. I have a big piece about how high-yield accounts work, both high-yield savings and high-yield checking. Um, it's very interesting in that Apple, which has always painted itself as being a sort of consumer-friendly disruptor in the finance space, has wound up reinventing the sort of consumer-unfriendly uh, aspect, many of the some of the consumer unfriendly aspects that we've seen in the banking industry for for decades. Um, specifically, this idea that you need a checking account and a savings account, and you do your transactions out of a checking account that normally pays basically zero interest, and that if you want to earn interest on your money, you need to take it out of that checking account where you can't use it anymore, and it doesn't provide any kind of cash cushion. You know, if you get something taken out of your account like a mortgage payment, and you need to move it out of that, you need to move your cash out of your checking account and put it into a whole different account called a savings account that you can't transact from. So there's this weird um, unidirectionality to the Apple savings account where the Apple card pays these little daily cashback um, dividends. You can send them into your savings account so that they start earning 4.15% yield, which is great. But the thing about an Apple card is it's a credit card. You really should be paying it off in full at the end of every month. And you have savings by definition, right? Because you have a savings account. And maybe you want to use those savings to pay off your credit card bills. Can you do that? No, you can't just press a button and pay your, credit, your Apple card with your Apple savings account because it's a savings account, not a transaction account. So you need to go through, you need to take money out of your savings account, put it into your checking account, put it into your Apple Cash account or whatever, and then pay off the card. And it, it's just like a pain in the ass. It's not necessary. Why set it up like this? Um, and the answer, of course, is that what Apple wants is for everyone with cash in their Apple Cash accounts to just keep it there, lending the money at 0%. And they don't want to pay interest on that money. And that's the move by banks all over the land, Felix. That's that's what I gleaned from reading your piece. Banks offer these high-yield savings. Some banks offer high-yield saving 
savings account rates to attract new customers, but they're hoping that their current customers won't realize that and they'll just stay with their money in checking or in a legacy savings account, which has a really low rate, and they won't have to pay that much money overall. Yeah, no, my, one of my favorite examples here is the Capital One savings account called 360 Premium Savings. You can get 3.5% on it. But if you've had a Capital One account for a while, your savings account isn't 360 Premium Savings. It's 360 Savings. There's no <laughs> real difference except between them except for the name. But the 360 Savings account pays 0.3%. Why is why is Capital One paying such a low interest rate to its savers? Because it can. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering now, I, I think um, people are finally starting to move their money out of those really low paying savings accounts, but not that many people. As far as I can tell, it's companies that are moving money out of banks for in search of higher yields and not individual customers so far that are doing it. Well, I mean, individuals are doing it more. One of the things that happened during the Silicon Valley Bank collapse was that people suddenly did realize that having a bunch of money on deposit in the checking account was dumb, partly because, you know, if there was more than $250,000 in there, it wasn't insured, but also just because there are 5% yields out there in the treasury bill market, in money market funds, in savings accounts. And, you know, you can get 4 or 5% quite easily. Mm -hmm. um, and that's real money that you're leaving on the table if it's just sitting in your checking account. Yeah, I don't have a, a big insight, but, you know, the range of what people can get, you know, 4.15 is, I guess, better than the minimum right now, which is around 3.5. But you could easily... there there. Well, the minimum is zero. Remember, most yeah. people aren't getting anything like that. The, the 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 really the real point here is that you need to open up a new account mm -hmm. to be able to get these interest rates in nearly all cases. There are very few people sitting on a legacy account that they've had for many years that's paying four point something percent. Yeah, and that's the thing. Okay, so I think a while back, I was under the impression that people don't switch bank accounts like ever. There's something people say, you're more likely to get a divorce than switch your bank or something. But then, Felix, you told me that's a myth. Um, but it still seems like there's a lot of, not lazy, maybe laziness, lack of motivation. No one wants to switch banks. It's it's difficult. You have so many payments. Switching banks is a real pain. Tied up yeah, and, to and, your bank account. And Yeah. And so this is, this is where the, there is a public policy solution to this problem. It's called open banking it has a few other names but basically it's it exists in various bits of northern europe and it's going to slowly spread around the world and it's going to happen in america in 20 years time because america always moves very slowly but basically what it means is that you own all of your banking relationships um all of the direct deposits coming in all of the payments automatic payments going out you know all of that kind of stuff is just a uh, a set, you know, it's like it exists in a file, basically, that you can port very easily from institution to institution. So if I wanted to switch banks, all I need to do is go to my new bank and like, you know, port over that one file and everything moves. All my checking money moves, my savings money moves, my mortgage payments get taken out of a new um, 
account, my paycheck gets paid into a new account, all of that kind of stuff happens automatically. I don't need to go to my HR department and say, can you change my paycheck number and you know my bank account number and, and that kind of thing. So there is a way of doing it. And it won't happen in America for a very long time because of the way that you know the Federal Reserve is structured, but it can be done. Banks would One hate that. They in- would fight that tooth and nail. One interesting reason why it won't happen is that bank regulators don't actually care about consumers. Mm -hmm. Bank regulators care about banks. And the fact that it's difficult to change bank accounts makes banks more profitable. It makes it easier for them to lock, to effectively lock people into these low interest accounts by sheer laziness and inertia. And that's good for banks. It means it helps their net interest margin and it makes them systemically safer. It makes it less likely that they will fail. Mm -hmm. And so anything that is good for consumers at some point becomes bad for banks. And if it's bad for banks, then regulators don't like it. And so regulators are less likely to insist upon it. And consumer deposits are, I mean, as Matt Levine's been writing, there are short term, they're, they're tech, they're theoretically pretty flighty. Like you don't have to keep your money in the bank. You lend your bank, you, you lend money to your bank with in a form of deposit. You can take it out whenever you want already. Like doing what you're proposing would make it, making it even easier would put banks more at risk of bad stuff happening, which ultimately could be bad for consumers. So maybe it's okay that it's super annoying to switch banks, but I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that I'm landing there. Do you think that... I, I, think, I think what we need to do is, is look at how open banking plays out in Europe and see if it causes any, like, big bank runs. My, I suspect it probably won't, but the, Dan Davies um, in England has this theory that... I'm, I'm not going to actually... I'm not going to put this in his mouth because it's not exactly what he said, but if you read what he says, one of the conclusions you might draw on your own is that that kind of open banking situation does make bank runs more likely um, in an age of social media where if a big bank starts getting cancelled for some reason, Mm -hmm. it becomes very easy for everyone to just move their bank out of that, uh, move their money out of that bank simultaneously. I'm not sure um, that that would happen. I'm not sure that big banks really get cancelled on social media to the point where everyone pulls their money out um, or that that's really a risk. But maybe? I mean, Like, we kind of saw something a little bit like that with Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah, that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. The bank got, I mean, cancelled is probably a funny word, but it did. It got cancelled on social media by startup CEOs <laughs> and VCs. <laughs> and then a bunch of people moved their money out. That is what happened. Although I don't know if normals... What would be the reason to cancel a bank? I mean, there are so many reasons already to cancel banks. I mean, I don't know if people have been following J.P. Morgan, Epstein coverage, um, but there are reasons to to already out there, and no one seems to care that much. No one's pulling their money out of Chase because J.P. Morgan knew about Epstein, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's shenanigans. Oh, and (laughs) talking about, like, you know, the distinction between risky private companies blowing up spaceships and safe public regulated companies like too big to fail banks. Um, I was thinking while we were having that discussion that here in New York, we have 
a bunch of too big to fail banks, including Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase, both of which have erected or are in the process of erecting very expensive new headquarters buildings, and both of which have actually killed people in the construction of those buildings. What? Say more. There was there was one guy who died um, when the Goldman Sachs headquarters were being built over on West Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more recently, another guy died, a construction worker died in the construction of the new J.P. Morgan headquarters on Park Avenue. How awful. It's really bad. And like that's, you know, human beings who are dying, which is a, that's that's two more people dying than died in the SpaceX explosion. I have a separate theory about new headquarters. When companies build new flashy headquarters, that's like that means they're gonna they're gonna collapse. But it turns out that well, that's what happens. Really to, that's what happened to Best Earns, right? Yeah, and um, Time Warner and AOL. I think they had a big splashy new headquarters that didn't go well for them. But then Apple bought <laughs> Apple made a whole new campus in Cupertino, and Apple seems it to looks be like fine. a donut. Yes, they seem to be fine. So I don't know if it's the greatest theory, <laughs> but I stand by it. Um, we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Mm-hmm. My number is 340,000. That is the approximate number of UPS workers that are in their union. It's the largest uh, private union contract in North America. And they just started negotiations with the company UPS this week. So everyone is watching to see what happens because kind of sets the tone for labor generally in the country and depending on what they get and how they do if they go on strike it's it would be the biggest strike in decades i think the last time their negotiations fell through was 1997 so it's probably not likely and um yeah and their biggest issue is what the union calls a two-tier workforce because uh ups workers drivers who work weekends don't make as much money as drivers who work during the week. Part-time drivers make a lot less than full-time drivers. There's all these like little issues. So everyone's kind of watching this in the labor community. My number is 602,000, which is a bad number, but also kind of a hopeful number. So 602,000, the number of people who died in Africa in 2020 of malaria. Um, which went up from 2019 for the first time basically ever, or the first time in like 20 years um, because of COVID. And COVID made it much more difficult to provide bed nets and stuff. And so, yeah, um, malaria was is, is a really, really nasty problem. And most of those people who died of malaria were children under the age of five. And yeah, and that is a big, nasty number and very preventable. And the good news is that now there's this new vaccine called R21. We finally have a malaria vaccine. It's taken decades to produce. And it has already been approved by both Ghana and Nigeria. And it has already been approved by both Ghana and Nigeria. It was developed by the University of Oxford, It is going to be produced by the Serum Institute of India. The Serum Institute is opening a factory to produce it in Accra, in Ghana. And while it's not a complete magic bullet, it does seem to be extremely effective, about 77%. You give it to babies between the ages of like five months and three years, and it really does stop you from dying of malaria or even catching malaria. So um, 
a lot of people are very hopeful that this will really start bringing down the number of malaria deaths in the world because the overwhelming majority of malaria deaths in the world are in Africa. Um, that it will start bringing that down because they've been kind of flatlining for the past decade or so. People, there, there was a lot of uh, easy wins at one point, and then it just stopped going down. And people, are, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful anyway that this will help bring that number down to something humane. And it's one of the most deadly diseases in the world, malaria? The mosquito is by far the deadliest animal in the world. Oh, right. That always comes up in my family for some reason. Talk about it. It's not the shark. Pfeiffer. Yeah. <laughs> not the shark. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yes. Uh, 14.8 million, and that's dollars. And that's the amount of gold that was stolen recently from the Toronto airport, which is Pearson. Apparently, most of the gold that's mined in Canada goes through Pearson. And it was stolen from a cargo area. And the cops think that organized crime did it. But I see a headline that says gold heist, and I'm immediately into it. So that, that was my number. For 14, $14 million of gold? Mm-hmm. That must be heavy. How much does that weigh? <laughs> Uh, 3,600 pounds. Oof. So this was not something you just like put in your jacket pocket no. and strolled away. <laughs> no, no, they, they needed, they, they needed motorized vehicles to move this shit. Yes. Yeah. You need a plan for that. Um, was, was that, I mean, I'm trying to remember, was that like at the beginning of Goodfellas, like stealing a whole bunch of gold from an airport? The Lufthansa heist. Wasn't that based on real events? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And then it leads to everyone involved winds up. Well, I don't want to spoil Goodfellas for people. (laughs) Have you done it on Slate Money Goes to the Movies? It's such a good movie. In case you haven't seen Goodfellas and you want to be, and you want to like know what happens to the four people who haven't seen Goodfellas. Well, we have a listener because I spoiled Six Feet Under on Succession podcast. I kind of spoiled it. And someone wrote in and was like, I was in the middle of watching. (laughs) <laughs> all right um i w- i think this is where we should we should probably leave this show um i'm going i'm going to just say along with thanking patrick for, for producing and encouraging you all to write in that if you haven't seen goodfellas you have to see goodfellas it's a great it's a great movie maybe we will do it on slate money goes to the movies one day um, other than that, thanks for listening, and we'll be back on Monday with Peter Kafka on Slate Money Succession. <laughs>